Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Hello and welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, your host, Michaela Thomas. Well, hello there. Do you remember me? I'm still here, but I am focusing my attention on creating my group coaching program for ambitious female entrepreneurs, founders, and other impactful leaders who want to burn bright without burning out. So if you are a working woman, juggling your family life with your work life, you may want to learn more about this 12-week program called Burn Bright and sign up to watch a free masterclass. So head on over to thethomasconnection.lpages.co forward slash burn bright. That's thethomasconnection.lpages.co forward slash burn bright. For now, I hope that you enjoy this re-release of a previous episode, which I loved recording to celebrate coming to 100 episodes of this podcast and to celebrate that I'm choosing to protect my energy and focus whilst I'm burning bright. You may not have heard this episode yet, so dive on in. So in this episode with Nikita, I'm really pleased to introduce to you someone who is also a practitioner with couples, much like me, but using also her own powerful journey of experiencing and surviving sexual abuse domestic violence, and also a lot of hardship as a woman of colour. So we're sharing some of these powerful messages whilst also helping you consider how you can create more balance in your life by setting some bold boundaries of not just what you don't want to do, but also honing in on what you do want to do. So stay tuned to the very end. This is a really powerful episode for the beautiful takeaway that Nikita has for you. So I hope that you enjoy. So let me introduce my guest properly. Nakita Renthigpen is a licensed social worker and regarded as the number one balance and relationship advisor in the world. She has become the go-to for fast-scaling married women entrepreneurs and power couples seeking to balance love and success without dimming or apologising for their spirited ambition. As the creator of the breakthrough paradigm, The Joy Map Method, and she's the international best-selling author of the book Selfish, which you will hear more about in this episode, She's also a transformative empowerment speaker and the CEO of Thig Pro Balance and Relationship Management Institute. Nikita and her team set out every day to inspire, equip and empower her client partners to amplify intimacy across all key relationships so they can create joy and achieve whole success. And I'm very excited to introduce my guest because we've had a little bit of banter going already before we started recording so it feels like We're using the analogy of what you just said around sitting around the kitchen table and then maybe people just happen to be sitting around listening. We're not really tuning into that right now. We're just going to have a really grounded, lovely conversation about balance and bold boundaries. So welcome so much. Thank you, Michaela, for having me. I am honored and hype to be here with you because we are clearly aligned minds. Definitely. And I think that's sort of when you reached out to me about coming onto the podcast, realizing that there was so much overlap and alignment around sort of our permission to pause and 
finding balance and um, you know obviously I speak a lot about finding balance over burnout so I just couldn't wait to get you onto the podcast and we've got some juicy questions for you today so um, I just also wanted to mention that you said to me that I'd rather not read the questions beforehand and I really honor and respect that do you want to just start by telling the listeners why that is why did you not want to read the questions beforehand yeah so I am a reformed perfectionist Uh, it was it definitely served me in my younger years and through all of certifications and degrees and college and graduate and you know postgraduate all that good stuff where it didn't serve me was holistically in my life. Like as I tried to transition from the academic version of myself to stepping fully into creative, innovative, you know, wildly curious and adventurous self, I was being bound by overthinking, overanalyzing, and it really created a lot of overwhelm for me. Uh, what I learned and through my entrepreneurial journey is that I am a planner, which is a good thing. I don't hide from that or run from it. I've worked it in, but in the planning, I can get really tangled and over-preparing really quickly. So what I decided to do is like look at where in the structure of my business and you know all the things that are a part of my business, including showing up fully uh, with opportunities like this to be on other people's couches, so to speak, and other people's kitchen and, and have really good conversation. And I realized that when I would get questions ahead of time, I would super over-prepare like it was a test, right? Like things that are really just about me, my business, my clients, how I show up in the world, whatever the questions may be. And I was literally prepping for a test. I'm going through my old PowerPoints. Oh, I want to give this note. I want to get this statistic. I want to give this. Oh, well, let me check the science first because something may have changed since the last time I've you know, talked about this specific issue. Like I was really getting drowned in my perfectionism. Um, and so because I realized it, I stopped it. I literally said, this is this is me. And if I'm being on a show that is in, in integrity with all the things that I want to give to the world and how I want to show up fully and the value that I can offer, then there's literally no question that you can ask me that I can't answer. I love that. Stepping away from what you call the uh, the analysis paralysis, where obviously with that fear of failure or fear of getting it wrong, fear of saying the wrong thing, actually really stops us from showing up authentically like we were meant to be and selling the message that we're supposed to to give. So I'm hoping to today that I can give you that platform to share some of these beautiful points that I've, I know that you share on your social media. And obviously for anyone who fa- kind of find themselves falling in love with what you've got to say today, then obviously all of the links to where you can find your work will be in the show notes as well. So let's just kind of almost like roll back the reel a little bit because <laughs> we got diving straight into the perfectionism stuff. We want to just make sure that we know a little bit more about you first as well. So tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah. So uh, my background and all the things, I'm always careful with that word background because people assume when you say that, that you are no longer those things. My background is what I am today. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I specialize in trauma, sexology, relationship therapy, psychotherapy, DBT, CBT, all the things. That if you're in the clinical world or you're familiar with it, there's a lot of different ways to help people move through their trauma, to go from surviving into a space where they can thrive. And I infuse modern coaching techniques like breakthrough success coaching into all that I do as my umbrella term is balance and relationship advisor. I work with a lot of power couples and married women entrepreneurs that really they come to me Michaela exhausted. Um, Mm -hmm. They are successful on paper with all the things, right? The house, the cars, the the picket fence, the dogs, two cats, whatever it is that they have defined as uh, what they were striving for to a point. And along the way, they lost themselves. They lost their individual identities. 
They feel separated as married women and or males who are entrepreneurs. They feel like they're being pulled apart and constantly forced to choose between their success and what they've been working so hard for, like having that deeper intimacy with the people that they've been striving so hard to be successful for, specifically in their marriages and in all really honestly, all key relationships that matter to them, whether they are parents or non-parenting, taking care of elders and obviously leaders in their business. So I'm really helping them to truly live fully. Mm. And it sounds like that's a very values-based business, trying to kind of connect with the deeper meaning and purpose for them that might not actually be the monetary reward that they might have strived so hard for that you know if i often use the example of so you can buy the mercedes but you don't have the time to drive it so what's the <laughs> point you know where's the joy in that i mean you bought this fast car that looks fantastic but it's sitting in your, in your drive because you're just constantly at work so it sounds like that's something that comes into it when you think about that balance that actually connecting what really matters to you connecting what was purposeful is that fair yeah, absolutely. It's really permission to slow down so you can speed up and do what you want. Like if you and you do a lot of similar work. So you know that mm -hmm. if you help people with those inner child challenges that are driving their adult cars now, like the things that haven't healed are still kind of driving their decisions. If we can help them heal and get those fractured pieces together, they feel good. They feel empowered. They feel confident, which obviously allows them to be more creative and innovative and be more authentic in their leadership and whatever their role is, whether they own a business or they are a part of helping someone else's organization run successfully and create impact. It doesn't matter the role, but when they're able to do that, they actually do increase their wealth. They're able to link the ROI, but it's not the same direct link as like, hey, you just paid for a marketing coach to you know, create a brand for you and, and therefore you got more links and your SEO went up. This is a, hey, I'm helping you to step, step fully into who you are, to enjoy pulling in the driveway at night and not wanting to sit in the car for 45 minutes because everything that's on the out, other side of that door is exhausting to you. The thought of having to relate to someone on the other side of the door is exhausting to you, not because you don't like them, not because you are thinking about divorce, you know, that there is a level of that, but those are not the people that are drawn to me. Um, those people I will typically refer to colleagues that are in that space. I'm working with people who literally say like, no, no, I'm happy. I, I love my husband. I love my wife. Like we have a great life. And, and they put in parentheses and I want more. I want different. I want better. Mm. And do you think that that's an element of feeling burnt out or exhausted that they give so much in their careers? in their businesses as entrepreneurs that so they don't feel that they can continue to top up the other domains in their lives? Absolutely. And some of it is scarcity, you know, and it, the 2020 didn't help, right? Like with all, no. right? Like all the things that came up from, I've referred to the pandemic specifically as an unsolicited and disruptive gift because there was a gift in all of the wildness that came. There was a lot of hurt and harm and grief that was caused by it, but there was also the gift of exposure, people having their buffers removed from them, all the things, right? All the activities that we mm -hmm. could go to before as business women, all the networking, the events, the breakfast meetings, the, you know, the celebrations, the speaking engagements, all of that in a, the traditional sense with, you know, logistics of travel and such, those buffers were removed 
And it forced you to have more time to look at things that you weren't paying attention to in your life, including, you know what? I don't like how he swallows. He, he eats his daggone food too, too loud. Or <laughs> she, you know, she's constantly not cleaning up the bed. Like she doesn't make the bed when she gets out of it last. And, you know, things that you were able to kind of ignore and step over, but were slowly, you know, bottlenecking in the back of your brain as issues that bother you were all coming to fruition because of the pandemic. And it it literally created this dynamic where people had to talk to each other or discover that there was something else that was going on because now we have no buffers to anchor us together. Now we're forced to look at why aren't we talking? Why don't we have more to talk about than the news or the politics or you know the social unrest that's happening? And all of those things are important and they should be talked about. But what happened to the part of us that was ignited when we first fell in love and we could stare into each other's eyes and create emotional intimacy just by breathing. Where's that energy? So it's almost like, well, sometimes you use a phrase of how any crack has had a bit of a whack during mm -hmm. the pandemic. So anything that was a rupture or a difficulty or a friction before this has been almost like supercharged by the pandemic. Because this is a strain on all of us, but yes. something I've seen in, in the couples of managing this successfully is to be able to tolerate hardship and see this as a, oh, this is difficult. You know, how do we buckle up for this? How do we face this as a team? How can we keep calibrating and keep learning from this experience? Because it might be that, you know, what was working in the beginning of the pandemic is no longer working when you're both really fatigued and you've run out of steam and adrenaline. So I'm finding that I'm doing different things in my relationship now with my partner compared to what I did, you know, a year ago when we were mm -hmm. kind of just facing this um, difficulty from the, from the get-go. And I think you're right that there's definitely been a blessing in disguise here that there's been messages or gifts, like you're saying, that, uh, of how we want to live our lives and when things will eventually return back to normal. Lots of couples are saying, I don't want to return back to normal as it was before. I might want to return back to part working from home. I want to cut down my commute somewhat. I want to have more time with the kids, etc. So it sounds like we're starting to kind of emerge that connection that you make between our partner relationship and our leadership skills. So mm -hmm. why do female entrepreneurs need relationship skills to further their success in their business? What's the link? As women, we have a communal need uh, literally for community or, or a visceral need for community is a better way to say it. Like it's innate for us to want that. Even those of us who are introverts and fuel up with the quiet space and the solo things that we do, we still have that pool for social intimacy, if you will, because intimacy is just more than physical intimacy, right? It's, it's even more than just emotional intimacy as well. When we think about the fact that we're really innately good at this, <laughs> we're really like women are dope, period. But like we're really actually quite good at connecting and creating relationships when we remove all of the narratives that have existed in our lives because other people have made us feel like we're not good connectors or that we don't communicate correctly. Not that we can't improve that communication because there are the queen bees in workplace, right? I'm sure you and your audience has also uh, run into that at some point where there's the woman who is has scarcity mindset, who feels like the resources are limited, is only room for one of me in this higher level of position. So she doesn't mentor the other women that are coming along. She doesn't pour into her. She kind of keeps her back. Those things are happening a lot of the time because there's inner child healing issues that are coming up that not only would fracture her personal relationship, but fractures her leadership. But when you pour into other people that are colleagues, direct reports, 
peers and even upwards, depending on what your organizational hierarchy is, if you will, for the company that you're in, you've literally expanded opportunities for more yeses in your life. And expansion is really what we should be all going for. Like, let, let's expand in our energy. Let's expand in our joy. Let's expand in our curiosity and adventure. It's really difficult to do that if you're in a saran wrapped bubble, right? <laughs> like if you're shrink wrapped and you're not creating healthy, authentic, transparent relationships. Hmm. That's really powerful. I'm moving from that sense of competition and criticism onto more collaboration. And I guess when we step into an abundance mindset, when we think actually there is enough, when it comes into business, there is enough work for everyone. And when we collaborate, we are able to move further together. You know, my, my business coach often talks about if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. And that mm -hmm. sounds like that's very fitting with your your idea of leadership there of actually pouring into other women and supporting and lifting other women up. And I think after the year we've had, and in the UK after the, the week we've had here um, around a lot of uh, current events, I think that's even more important to think about how women can support other women. So I think that's a very powerful skill set to have to improve things that factual things of communication that you can train and improve but also knowing that this is a, it's important for us to find our tribe so thank you for sharing that another thing i wanted to ask you about that i've sort of been finding on your social media is that you say that balance is the truth of what you want and the boundaries that you create can mm -hmm. you explain what you mean by that and how do we how do we find that balance yeah so i do believe that we create our balance I think that part of the, the challenge, and I talk about this a lot in the, the book Selfish, is we often are told we have to find, we have to curate, we have to go out where we are already filled with everything that we need. I truly believe as a woman of God, as a very spiritual woman, that I have every single thing that I need to move to the next step. And I will gain whatever else I need if a solution uh, you know, is needed, if because a problem has arose, it will present itself. I just have to be ready to receive it. So it's not really this hunt, this chasing that we're doing, especially as entrepreneurs, there's a lot of like, go find your clients, go do, and I believe we attract them. We attract them because of things that are innately in us already. A couple who wants to work with you may not choose me for very different reasons, not because we're not both equally skilled and personable mm -hmm. and all the good, amazing, you know, wonderful things about us. But there is a draw. There's a reason that a couple will go to you specifically versus coming to me. And that is fine because there's 7 billion plus people here, right? Like there's more than enough for it. And if we celebrate standing in being really clear about what we want, then we're not going to want to take each other's people, right? Like you're in the room and you're like, oh, it's couples. I have to go, go go get these 10 and, you know, I have to worry about me and Nikita. Oh, well, it's like, no, girl, listen, Nikita, I know that you work with ABCXYZ type of person. They right over there in the corner. I was just having a glass of wine with them. And I'm like, Michaela, yes, honey. And right over here, let me let me take your hand and go introduce you to them. Because the truth is I'm really clear about what I want. So those boundaries that I create to go get it allow me to be expansive. Boundaries don't have to limit you into just a bunch of like what you won't do. It's it's also making room for what more of what you you choose to do, right? Like everything comes down to a choice. So I give an example a lot of times when I'm talking about this formula for balance, because I know a lot of people feel like, oh, there's no work-life balance, it's just integration, it's harmony, all that stuff. I often stand and physically when I can, stand in front of them, and then I'll like literally go off balance. Like I'll lose, my leg will buckle up under me. Like what just happened? 
Like, well, you clearly lost your balance. I'm like, exactly. When you're carrying 50 spinning plates, which is totally fine, there's no judgment about what you have on, that what you're dealing with. But if you're carrying 50 spinning plates and one of them falls, you don't feel like you're not integrated or you lost harmony or you're not in alignment. You feel like you're off balance and you're probably off balance, so to speak, because you're not truly admitting what you want and creating boundaries so you can achieve it and keeping you know distractions out of it. You have a bunch of stuff on your plate because of other people's expectations, including private expectations of your former self, your Nikita 1.0 self. But if Nikita's trying to be 100.0, then why is she still living to the 1.0 expectation of herself? Or the, you know, people say now like, I'm, I'm 10Xing myself. Okay, that's great. So what happens when you get to the 10X version of Nikita? Do you stay there or do you wanna go further? Do you want to get the 15x, 20x? Well, if that's the case, then you have to look at them. Why are the expectations of the 10x version of Nikita still driving the car for the 15x version of Nikita? Like you have to break those expectations. So if Nikita says she wants to be a major secret philanthropist, then part of her boundary is making sure that she has space to do the work, to create the income, to create the impact and all the ripples that come for it so that she can then give $2 million to whatever fund she wants to give and not do those humble brags that I'm sure, Michaela, you've seen on Instagram where someone Mm -hmm. has like their cute 10-year-old son washing their Mercedes Benz, like, yeah, I'm putting the work, teaching the responsibility, but it's really so that you can see that it's a Mercedes Benz, right? Like Nikita has to be really careful not to say she wants to be a private philanthropist but then she's not really creating boundaries for herself to do it because every opportunity that comes up, she's like, yeah, girl, because I just had to pay for, I just had to spend. Like, you got to really be authentic to who you say you are and have integrity in that. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's so powerful, not just not just saying what do I not want to do and set those boundaries, but also saying this is who I am, this is what I'm about and daring to attract and repel in equal measure. And I think that's powerful of like you're saying, the you know there's enough. There's enough for everyone. That you know the fact that we both work with couples, it doesn't mean we work with the same couple, right. and that's okay too. I'm I'm really okay with what kind of couple I don't work with, and I've mm. had some kickback around that, and that's often what happens, unfortunately, when we set some boundaries. That those people who don't respect them uh, are the ones we actually really needed to set the boundaries against in the first place. So, so I'm true. curious if if you got any sort of examples of boundaries you've had to put in place for yourself to so you could follow your ambition without drowning in it and burning out. Yeah. No. <laughs> There's, oh gosh, I'm the special one. So I'm the oldest of five children um, and I have multiple mother figures in my life. My biological mother is still in my life, but we have a very boundary filled relationship because of the toxic behaviors and her insistence on still being a drug addict and doing the various things that she does and the people that she has come in and out of her home. I've had to put boundaries around her being with and near my children. My children are not allowed to go over to their maternal grandmother's house and, you know, sit on her lap or, you know, play with whatever drug dealer she has coming over that day. That was a very clear boundary that I had to set. Like, I love you. I'll call you. I'll check on you. I will send groceries to your front door, like whatever it is that you need, because I want you to be healthy. I want you to have an opportunity to be whole again and to heal. But I'm not going to say like, oh, that's my mom. So she gets to watch my kids. Oh, that's my mom. So my two and my three-year-old grandchildren are going to go sit on your lap and I know what happens in that house. Like, I'm not going to do that. Uh, So one of those really difficult boundaries that I had to set was being really clear about what the world says is 
expected of you and what should happen as a way of you healing versus what you know is for the betterment of your own personal life. And so you're not being literally sucked into a toxic hole because my mother does have mental health illness and there's a lot of things that are going on with her. And I have to support her with arm's distance, if you will, is the best way to say that. I have boundaries around my expectations with my friends. You know, I love I love really hard. Like I am super hard lover, reformed loyalist. I'm a lot of reformed things as you're you're getting the pattern here, <laughs> right? Like I just learned, like I was loyal to a false. I was loyal to the point that I would jump in front of someone and take a bullet, take a punch in the throat, like do whatever. And they wouldn't have even thought twice about doing the same for me. And I would do it because I'm so loyal. And I realized that by being that person that was loyal to a fault, the people who needed me, my, my kids who didn't, you know, just has me and my husband, they needed me to be here and not be so loyal to other people, places and patterns in my life that I would, you know, not on purpose, but unintentionally leave them abandoned and alone and, and out there for the wolves to get. So I had to be really clear about like, what are these identities that you grew up feeling like you needed to have that were getting in the way? And one of them was the, the need to be everywhere for everyone. So I have a really tight circle of friends, and then I have an expansive circle of really good colleagues and associates that I love to you know, have wine with or coffee or tea or whatever the case is when you know, virtually or, or non based on pandemic rules at the time. And with that, I'm really clear about the expectations of showing up. So if someone is in a certain circle of my life and says, oh, yeah, I'm going away for a four day vacation and it's going to be me and five other people. And I would love for you to come, Nikita. It would be great. But they're not in my super inner circle. I'm most likely going to say no, because I save that energy for my super inner circle because I have a very full, productive schedule. And I know that if I'm going to go away two or three times a year outside of what my nucleus family does, my husband and my kids, and my grandkids do then I need to make room for that versus just willy nilly being like, oh, yeah, girl, I'll be there. No, I won't. But I'm absolutely willing to have a wind down with you for an hour or an after hours. And I don't explain. I just give a clean no. Mm. And it's not all or nothing. It doesn't mean that we can't do anything for that person. But finding a, a, this kind of stretchiness that you're willing to, to commit to, because otherwise it's always that risk of resentment in friendships or in, in my partnerships that, if we over promise, sometimes we under deliver. Yes. And if we over promise, we also more likely to burn out and feel resentful. And it's not fair on the other person that, you know, if we sort of go above and beyond and always expect the same result, we either feel disappointed that they're not matching our efforts, or we feel resentful and, you know, upset that, you know, we're, we're actually giving more than we're getting. So I think that calibrating and adjusting where you set your line, what you're willing to do, and I guess sort of very different examples you're giving of, say, friendships versus a toxic relationship, that there is just a non-negotiable line that you draw there out of self-preservation for you and for your children and your grandchildren thinking, actually, that's not safe. So yes. sometimes actually setting a boundary to someone else is about keeping yourself safe, but also sending a kind of compassionate message to them as well that, you know, as long as you are engaging in this, it's not, I cannot have this relationship with you means we're not colluding with that self-destructive behavior. So I think it's very powerful that you're sharing these things so openly. And you said to me the before we started recording that, you know, you're very open with your own personal journey and that that's part of the authenticity that you bring into your work. And I think that's something 
that's been so taboo beforehand. You know, lots of us, clin- you know, in the clinical field, feel that we can't share our personal journey, our own personal uh, wounds, yeah. because we're supposed to be like quote unquote a blank slate. And I think that, thankfully, that is shifting somewhat. That we are allowed to be human. We're allowed <laughs> to have had a past, because, like you say, that's you know, that's helped you to reform things. Uh, you know, being a reformed loyalist and a reformed perfectionist. It sounds like you've had to have do a lot of inner work, a lot of learning yourself. And yes. I'm wondering then how, because you mentioned your book, Selfish, which I want to get to because it looks amazing. I've ordered it and I've not arrived yet, unfortunately, but it looks fantastic. And I wonder how self-care has helped you personally and how come you use that word selfish in conjunction with it, like writing your book, Selfish, or thinking about some of the posts you put up, like Selfish Saturday, etc. Mm-hmm. How is this helpful how did you come up with this word when i think that this is what many high striving women are afraid of being if they look after themselves that i'm going to be selfish or self-indulgent how how does this come about for you and how does it help the women that you serve yeah now that's a great question Uh, so i will be completely transparent as usual when the word downloaded into my spirit uh, when i was toiling with sharing my story uh literally at this point almost nine and a half years ago the the book literally took me eight and a half years to write Mm. i had to live through so many of the experiences again and again and again just to get it out of me because there were so many parts of it that weren't healed there was the script and there was the narrative and there was fractures that i didn't even know were open wounds because i'm one of those women who's very ambitious high achieving always booked and busy right like all the things So I was able to run from and hide from a lot of the work I had to do, even being in therapy for over three years consistently to deal with the multi-systemic trauma that I grew up with, Uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, you name it. I went through it growing up as a child um, and into my, my young adult years. With all that was going on, I knew that there was a lot of power to the story. I wanted to share it. I didn't realize how broken I still was because 2011, when it downloaded in my spirit to write the book Selfish, I had no intention on doing that. I was like, what? I was literally fussing with God. Like, what? I'm not writing that. I'm the very opposite of selfish. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm not that, right? And I didn't understand that there was so much more to this word wasn't a word. It was a movement. It was a reclaiming. It was a redefining, which I would discover along my journey of just sharing my truth and sharing my story. I would start by just recording, you know, past memories of what I can remember of things that impacted me, affected me, that were linked to different decisions, kind of like the domino effect of what led me to even wanting to become a clinician, what led me to embracing being a mother, what led me to keep going after multiple miscarriages and stillbirths and all the different things that I would personally go through and how that impacted my husband and our physical sexual intimacy as well as our emotional intimacy and all the different levels that I would have to literally journey through over and over again to be truthful in this book. And because I'm a nerd, hashtag nerd for life, I also did some simultaneous simultaneous research around this word because I know that it's provocative because I struggled with it too. Like I'm not selfish, like self-care is not selfish. When in fact it is. So a little uh, back history somewhere because the the information changes a little bit based on whether you're reading the Greek or the Hebrew, but somewhere between 1620 and 1634, a what we believe was a Pentecostal bishop, and of course it could be another religion because that changes too, uh, but an older white man <laughs> who was in a high religious 
role where women of the 1600s had to go to to get permission for things, to to pray for coverings, to, to ask for direction in all areas of their life, but specifically their marriages. Women were going and saying, I feel overwhelmed with this desire that my husband has constantly to want to have sex with me whenever he wants. And I want the ability to say no. I'm like paraphrasing here, but basically that's what they were asking permission for. And the bishop said, for you to deny your husband his marital right to you is selfish. And because if you, you know, I'm sure you know from history lessons, if you are of certain stature, you say a thing and it gets into the lexicon. It's automatic. So that word got into the lexicon because an older white male said, this was selfish for women to deny their husbands at any request, period. Wow. Wow. So you can imagine why I have big, <laughs> big issues with that word. And, you know, through the centuries, we have buckled under the shame of this word. Women specifically, now men can be called selfish too, because we've definitely become more equal in some of the, the things that we say out of our mouths about each other, right? Like, you know, we'll call men and women call each other the same derogatory names nowadays and all kinds of different things. But just the, the mere fact that we have been literally trapped under this thought that we don't have the right to say no about our bodies, even with someone that we've promised ourselves to, or maybe based on your culture, your, your family promised you to, whatever the case may be. But even with someone that you have said consensually, I'll share this bed with you, you still have the right to say no, not now, no, period. And obviously that word has taken on so many other layers to it. So as uh, an advocate for women's rights, as a mental health advocate, as a woman who is a mother of a daughter and a granddaughter, I absolutely am not okay with this word. So I reclaimed it. I, I prayed, I'm very spiritual. So I prayed like, well, why this word? Why my book? My book is a survivor memoir and a personal transformation story. It's not a business book. It's not a how-to. It's literally just me telling the truth and hoping to give victory and, and possibility to other people who feel emotionally connected to some of the scripts and the torment that I went through, even if they didn't go through the same specific incidents. And then also reading, finishing the book because it, it is very heavy in the beginning, but finishing the book and seeing that there's so much joy on the outside of all the trauma and the drama that I had to literally grow through in all those painful processes. So I've reclaimed it and I've redefined selfish as a personal, intimate gift to create your joy. And gift for me is an acronym because it's for, it stands for gratitude, imagination, forgiveness and taking action. And I feel like when you're selfish, you have that space to not only be, which is the self-love, like to be in love with yourself, but and to do the self-care, which is all the doing that we do, the manicures, the pedicures, the massages, the reading, the fueling ourselves with, you know, magnesium infused baths, all the things, right? Um, but they're, they are two different things. I, I think self-love and self-care complement each other, but they are a part of intentional selfish behavior when you're doing it so you can have your own personal transformation story um, come to fruition. I wasn't actually aware of the linguistic roots to that, to that word, and I think I'm on the same page. I did a lot of digging when I was trying to write uh, about connection. I found sort of the Latin meaning of connection, which is to bind. And it started making me think a lot about sort of marital procedures and how we have set wedding ceremonies and, you know, 
Greek Orthodox culture where they obviously the, there is a binding together. So I think when we start to think about the meaning of this, the, these words and also where who coined them, where it comes from, I mean, it's, we're kind of coming back full circle to where we said just before we started recording was sort of the kind of the feminist thread that we use in, yeah. in our work that it's, you know, it's impossible to support women and couples without having an awareness of the pressure of the patriarchy and how the oppression that women has been happening over the, over the centuries, over the millennia, that actually today is not just about what you do, we think about those self-care acts that we do, that we take part in, like I say, taking action, but it's also what we won't do anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, being able to say, I won't, I won't have intimacy with someone when I'm not in the mood for it. And I think this is also recent. This is all, you know, in the modern times where we're finding this courage to stand up for ourselves, finding the assertiveness, compassionate assertiveness. It's not actually all that long ago that marital rape was still allowed. Right. So it's it's shocking, isn't it, when we think about it? So it's a very, very powerful conversation we're coming into now. And I find myself, you know, kind of saying that what I said beforehand about, you know, talking about politics, et cetera, has been a big no-no for psychologists, but I'm finding it's it's more and more impossible the older I get and, you know, entering into motherhood and supporting women who've been literally screwed over in the business place and watching the gender inequality. I find it so hard these days to not have a feminist perspective, to not talk about the pressure of the patriarchy. So I think I'm glad that we can highlight these discussions today and how you've seen your own personal journey. And it taking sort of eight and a half years to write this book, I think is also just a testament to how long healing can take that yeah. for you to be able to talk from a scar, not an open wound, I think is very, very important. Do you feel that you can do that now? You know, if you were, obviously we're not doing that in the current times, but touring around doing sort of um, book talks and book signings, etc. would you feel comfortable talking about everything you've put in the book? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, it's comfortable and uncomfortable, right? You know, even though, and I love how you phrase that, talking from the scar versus the open wound, even though it's a scar now because it's healed over, it's still present, right? Like it's still there with me. And I still have to be mindful of those parts of me that were comfortable and, and survival-based behavior versus the, the part of me that wants to live from a space of thriving now. You know, the, the younger Nikita, who we call Kia, because that was my nickname growing up, you know, Kia was a fighter. Kia would literally see a group of kids fighting in the street and not know what was going on, would watch for 30 seconds to see who was getting beat up on and literally go run and jump in the fight to help the underdog. Not knowing these kids, not knowing the situation, not knowing anything. I just never wanted to see anyone be jumped on. I, to this day, I still don't like liars and bullies. It's a huge, huge issue for me because I was raised with liars and bullies, right? Like, so those, some of those scripts that I've healed from, I understand where they come from. I'm able to not have them repeat in my own life, they still impact me. And it can be very uncomfortable, even when, you know, my younger brother who I raised, um, he's 12 years younger than me, I'm the oldest of five, and I had to literally take custody of him because of the the very horrible situation he was living in um, at the time. When I took custody of him at 13 and, and raised him and did all the things, I had to be really uncomfortable in conversations with him when he moved with us, I had two small kids. My kids are now 20, almost 25 and 20. Um, and my oldest is a father now. But when they were younger, my son is only a few years younger than him. And I didn't know all the things that might have happened to my brother when I wasn't with him, right? Because I'm, I'm young. I'm a young parent. My husband and I are basically newlyweds. We have these children. We're ch- just trying to survive. I'm trying to get through graduate school, like all the things. 
and my brother calls me like there's glass all over the floor. I can't take it anymore. Mommy has more of these men in the house. The whole thing come get me. I had to get him, go through the court systems, do all the things to literally take custody of him. Um, and in the process of that, I had to have very awkward conversations that still impact me to this day where I had to tell my, my brother who I loved, who I helped raise even before he officially moved with us. I need you to understand that if you have anything that has happened to you that you have an inclination for. And I was talking about, you know, uh, sexual uh, traumas that might have happened to him because I know what happened to me. My mother is also a madam. So there's lots of layers to that. And mm -hmm. so I know that there's a lot of possibilities of things that could have happened to him in her care when I wasn't able to take custody of him and do all the things. But I had to be very mindful. I have two small children here. And by no means am I not going to help and support you, but by all means, I need you to understand that you have a safe place to have a conversation with me. If there's something that's going on, I will get you into therapy, you know, all the things we need to do, but you better not touch my kids, right? Like it was awkward, mm -hmm. it was uncomfortable, and it was a really difficult conversation to have because you almost can't be accusatory when you're having it. And mind you, I'm a clinician, I'm, I'm working with all kinds of people. I'm having these conversations with other people's all the time, but to have it with my flesh and blood, with someone I love who's just a freaking kid, to do that and do it from a space of protection of other kids was really difficult. And I still get emotional when I think about that literally basement conversation that I had to have with him when he came over. So it's it's challenging to to talk about, to think about, to walk through a lot of those things. There's a lot of things that didn't make it into those 209 pages of the book, but I, I put as much of the more relevant defining stuff in it. And so sometimes when I do share my story on kind of virtual stages, I'll bring up things that aren't in the book because there were multiple other things that were kind of subsets of issues. And I still get really emotional, not because they're not healed, but because I'm human and I'm, I'm really visual. Like I can re-experience those moments that vividly all over again without the emotion of fear attached to it, but it's still like watching a movie that's emotionally compelling. It's not happening to you. You may not even be fearful when you're watching it, but you are empathetic to what's happening, right? And you know, your compassion rises up strongly for you. And I still have compassion for my younger self and everyone who was impacted because of it. Hmm. And I think that fits really nicely with what we talked about before of having that understanding for your own struggling your own strife that actually there's so much we can look back and talk to our inner child or our younger version of ourselves uh, with the wisdom and the life experience and the skill set we have as an adult so what would you want to say to yourself if you think about how far you've come what would you like to say to yourself about your own journey and how far you've come that's such a phenomenal and profound question because um, i believe that as much as we are masters of so many skills, right? And all the all the degrees, certifications, like all the things that we have that at some point just turn into alphabet soup. You still aren't ever a master of yourself because you're you're here, you're breathing, you're you're growing. There's still an opportunity. And I don't think I always saw that growing up. I didn't see that there was possibilities. I was just trying to see one foot in front of the other. And if I could have done it all over again, and obviously removed <laughs> lots of layers of, of, of issues and challenges I had no control over, I would have whispered to myself that the world is bigger than the moments that I could see around the corner. There's just, it's so much bigger. 
That's, that's why I don't believe in competition. I have zero competitors, just potential collaborators. And that's literally how I see everything. And it, it took me a while to become this person, right? Like it took me a minute to get here, but I wish I could have done that 20 years ago. Hmm. But then you wouldn't have had the, the wisdom and the learning through the, you know, the spending the time healing it. So it's almost like we can't wish away the healing process because right. then that would just be sticking a plaster on it. So it's really difficult to say, I wish I would have got here sooner. I wish I would have come to this realization quicker because I guess you can't, you can't rush these things with haste. It just takes as long as it takes to heal. And I think that's sometimes where we then look back with compassion to our suffering like you're trying to do now that actually there's still going to be an element of sadness that's going to well up of where we think, I feel very sad for the version of me back then who was going through all of this yeah. that, you know, I can still feel that the, the, the fear element, if, you know, like you're saying, it's not happening right now, that was then and this is now, but I still feel damn sad mm -hmm. about myself. Now that that's a testament to how far you've come in your journey of self-care and, you know, quote unquote selfishness to actually you're now standing up for yourself, setting these boundaries for yourself, protecting yourself in a way that you weren't protected when you were growing up. Yeah. So it's a very profound, powerful story you've shared with us, which I think that a lot of people in the audience will, will resonate with, that actually as a form of protection from that level of abuse you've experienced, perfectionism makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm gonna, if I'm going to kind of keep myself safe from things, I'm going to have to be the best at everything, yeah. or I'm going to have to be perfect, so there can't be any openness to criticism ever again. So it makes sense that that's been part of your recovery journey of letting go and shedding those layers of the perfectionism as well. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for asking the question. You're more than welcome. I, I do get told that I ask profound questions and sometimes <laughs> they can take people a little bit too far, but I sussed that the moment was right. I think you're very forthcoming. So I'm um, drawing things to a close a little bit more. I just want to sort of ask you if there's anything else that you're passionate about sharing, because, you know, we talked a lot about difficult topics. We talked about being a survivor of of you know physical and sexual abuse about finding your passion and your purpose in the here and now we talked about a lot of difficult things we talked about the oppression that women face so we might as well go to some other deep topics as well because i think i think we've got, got that sort of kitchen table vibe <laughs> to it don't we so i'm wondering if, if there's anything else you want to share as, as a woman of color what would you like to share about that about the hardship of, of women of color in business and in life this is you know this is your platform yeah, no, thank you. And I do really appreciate you opening up the kitchen door, so to speak, <laughs> wider for this because it is challenging. Um, as a woman of color, there's a lot of expectation. And we, we did a lot of talking around breaking expectations earlier in our conversation together. And a lot of those expectations are ancestral for us. We have to be the best of the best. We have to work two to 10 times harder than our counterparts that are non-women and men of color. Like we, we have to do it just to potentially get some drippings from the table. And that was not how I was raised in my house because the people around me were not ambitious. They were hard workers, they were hustlers, they had multiple jobs, uh, but they weren't ambitious in, in trying to climb a ladder or to open up their own companies and do that. So I wasn't told those narratives, but in my direct nucleus of my home, raised by my, my grandmother and my step-grandfather, who was also uh, a pedophile and an alcoholic and all kinds of different things, and my biological parents who were in and out, my father's still in and out of jail to this day and all that. So those people weren't telling me that, but the people that I was turning to for some resource and support, those were the people that were constantly telling me how it was important 
to be best at, um, not just better, but be best at everything. Helping me understand you have to code switch when you're in rooms. There was a lot of good lessons that were in there, but there was a lot of fear-based information that was provided because the lesson that they had learned is you better move out of fear when you're dealing with people in places at tables that are higher than you in rooms that you hope to be able to serve in, let alone to get in. So there's a lot of unfortunate hypocrisy and confusion and not only what we were told to be able to survive the, the alleyways of these conversations, these dark alleyways of conversation, so to speak, but there was also truth in a lot of it that was really hard to deal with as I trans transitioned from working in systems as a, a psychotherapist and a clinician and trauma specialist and all that and becoming an entrepreneur. I thought out of ignorance that those things wouldn't apply anymore once I created my mm -hmm. own table. I thought that that was only when you were trying to work within a hierarchy of a, a system, an organization, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, didn't matter, but for someone else's building, then yeah, those things apply. And I was very successful at using those tools to navigate. But as an entrepreneur, I should be able to walk in a room and just fully be me. And that was not the case. I've been an entrepreneur for over, at this point, we're going into, May will be 10 years. In my 10 years, I can tell you that 90% of the people that meet me, that love on me, that say, Nikita, you are a great girl. You're so amazing. You're awesome. They want to be my friend, but they don't necessarily respect the expertise. So I have to be very clear and filter who's trying to connect to me so I can be their new Black girlfriend versus who's trying to connect with me because they not only see the power and welcome the power, but just like they would do with anyone else who was not a person of color in their circle, who would also help to leverage the power, share me, not keep me a secret, not want me to be their private secret mentor in the background. But then when they have an opportunity to say, well, who has, you know, they're on, a, they're on your podcast, right? And you say, well, how have you been helped? Who's helped you? My name doesn't come up because I'm the secret person in their room, like the maid that's in their house from, you know, on the plantation days that's actually doing all the counseling, but would never be brought to the table and be shown as the person who's literally the advisor. So it still happens to this day. I just have better ways to filter out who those people are intuitively from the beginning. You know, that's really powerful to hear. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that it doesn't surprise me, but it still saddens me because obviously I, I hear these stories a lot. Um, but I think that's why we need to, to give you this voice and, you know, glad to feel like you got to be let in through the kitchen door. I would say that actually opened my front door. You know, <laughs> you, you're worth more than that. I'm not letting you in the back door. You're getting in the front door, girl. It's, that's definitely that way. And coming into my kitchen table. And I think reflecting on how these systemic oppressions happen even when we call the shots you know i've i've experienced that as a as a female entrepreneur yeah. even when i did the same thing of moving away from the systems where you know in in clinical psychology there's still so much more male leadership even oh though God. the profession is predominantly female and having those experiences that you know, even though when i've been working for myself i'm still experiencing those glass ceilings so i can't imagine how difficult it must be to when you come from marginalization from both the color of your skin and your gender that actually to feel that sense of shame and i'm just i'm just shocked and, and sad to hear it that people don't lift you to the forefront but i think you're right that's the sort of ancestral level so that's that's how it used to be that that was shameful whereas i'm hoping i'm hoping again wheels turn slowly but i'm hoping that when we have these discussions the uncomfortable discussions of shining a light on how 
there's so much work left to do. And I saw a quote recently that I, I, was, I was doing my very best to find the roots of this quote of how when you're used to privilege, um, equality feels like oppression. Have you seen that mm, quote? Yes. I oh, love that. Yeah. I love that. And that's, that's why there's so much resistance now around um, Black Lives Matter and what we've been seeing in the UK over the last week of women rising up against uh, not feeling safe and protected from um, the police service uh, after a few incidents have happened of a, a girl who's been abducted, abducted and murdered. So I think there's we're we are all rising up and using our voices, but again, it's frustrating because the wheels turn slowly. So every single time we have these conversations, even though they might be causing discomfort for people, they need to tolerate that discomfort because obviously nothing will change unless we make ourselves uncomfortable. So I think I'm very grateful that you shared that with me, even though that's something that must have been a very painful journey for you. And I will do my very best to continue to do this work and invite people who are fantastic like you to my kitchen table. So I'm very, very grateful that we've had this conversation today. And if we draw things to a close, what would be sort of the final thing that you would want to give to the listeners? You know, any sort of tangible takeaway, like a permission you want to give to them or a pressure you want them to take off themselves? What would that be? You say you again, I'm going to overuse this here, but you do have profound questions. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm really glad that I didn't read anything. So that's awesome. Um, I would say if I could give you one permission, it would be to laugh. Laughter is something that is so healing and so fulfilling. It raises your vibration, it pulls up your energy, it increases your oxytocin. Like there's so many pluses to laughing, but to do things that allow you to laugh, be more curious, be adventurous, dance in the rain, you know, go outside on your balcony if you're afraid to go in, into your front door, you know, go in your driveway. If you don't have a driveway, stand on top of your bed, like just dance and have fun with your body and just really get reconnected to yourself. It's one of the best things that I personally could have done for myself and I have all of my clients do it. Just have fun, laugh. Fantastic, thank you. That's so powerful and I'm sure a lot of listeners will try to do more of that, especially as we're I know coming I say out this at the end of a lot of episodes and restrictions. Wow, I think we just one. all want to reclaim And yes, I do ask profound questions at times. Together. And I Thank think you that so much for my curiosity as a psychologist. I just want to know the answer to honesty. I've had that from an early age. But I think it's also because life is profound and it's really difficult to discuss some of these hard topics like patriarchy, like female oppression, like sexual abuse without asking some profound questions of how that has affected life as a whole and how we think of it now. So if we're able to take some of the pressure of perfection off ourselves, if we're able to be kinder and more compassionate towards our journey, that healing process becomes so much more manageable and tolerable. So I hope that you've stayed with us to the end and have enjoyed listening to this episode. And if you have, please do me the favour of rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts so that more people can continue to discover the Pause Purpose Play podcast. Because I've got some really, really fun things planned for the future for what we're going to do with the podcast. But in order for me to do that, I need your support. I need you to tell others. I need some more growth so that we can continue to spread this message that done is better than perfect and that it's okay to share all the light and dark points of life that it's okay to be vulnerable and authentic with others rather than having this perfect facade so do me that favor do rate and review the podcast and if even better actually send it to someone who you think really would like this episode share it and 
Send that on in a WhatsApp Thank message to someone you care about. Time to listen to you this think episode. Needs to understand this I know idea it's not easy. Of boundaries you feel busy and overwhelmed a bit more. To find time. And until I speak to you next to time, do take care of if yourself. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm so that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm this episode of the pause purpose play podcast was presented by me Michaela Thomas and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk and because great work rests on having a great team This episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.